Dyer's Barns. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. What a privilege it is to be here this evening in this country, in this place of worship, and so that we can do this thing uh, in time that we're going to do for all of eternity in heaven with you, that is, worship you through your Son. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your Son's work on the cross to make this evening a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Gospel of Salvation and Sanctification uh, is our series. This is part 91 from Tuesday's message. And it's a continuation of a theme that he's have, had us uh, start uh, each lesson with, which was really trust in the process. There's an awful lot going on in one's sanctification, and we have to learn to trust in the process uh, which really alludes to faith. Um, and just a statement that I gathered from Tuesday evening's message, when we follow Jesus Christ with a sincere heart, He will reveal all things to us at the proper time. When we follow Jesus Christ with a sincere heart, He will reveal all things to us at the proper time. And as I was contemplating that, theme, uh, again, that keeps coming up in our studies, I was thinking about how the Bible does record his words, simply follow me. And the part that is tremendously edifying is that he has given each believer a new creature, made them new, and that new creature can only follow him. So there's the calling and then there's the reality. And that's very edifying that we have been made new and the new creature can only follow him. So dwell on that. It's very edifying. I'd like to begin uh, this evening's message uh, on top of that by revealing to you what the point on the board means in the practical sense. I mean, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to trust in the process? What does it mean to be sanctified, to be set apart. And what does it look like, frankly? I mean, there's an awful lot of big words like faith, uh, sanctification, salvation, freedom. What does this all look like? Well, there's a reason why this particular verse keeps coming back in our studies. The proof, that's that Greek word dokimaian, I've given you I don't know how many times at this point, but 1 Peter 1.7, so that the proof, dokimayan, the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this idea of having your faith tested and that it bears a certain fruit, that in itself, the fruit is the proof. The proof that your faith holds up under pressure is fruit. So here's what we've learned in the past. Keep that in mind. The proof of your faith requires testing, for example, by fire. We see that in in the passage itself. And this came up on Tuesday as well. What is faith untested? It's a good question. Faith reveals uh, its, uh, its value when tested. Whoa. Hold on a second. All right. This thing's got a mind of its own, DJ. I don't know why my eyes got to adjust. That just got bright, didn't it? Whew. How's that? (laughs) Proof of your faith requires testing, for example, by fire. What is faith? Untested. Faith reveals its value when tested. You can say, in other words, you have faith. The Bible talks about individuals who proclaim faith, but then they end up being apostates. They leave the faith, so to speak. And so what is faith until it is actually tested? It, reveal, it reveals its value when tested. Hebrews 11.6a says, And without faith it is impossible to please Him. 
So we even think about faith being a gift from God that He actually likes to see in each of us. And if we take an alternative route, let's say, to the so-called spiritual life that's minus faith, well, that's not pleasing to Him because it's faith that pleases Him. So we have a good handle on what Scripture has to say about faith and testing and how things are consummated in our souls as a result. And we might rightly call this uh, another form of good fruit that is exclusive to the account of a believer. In other words, when your faith stands up under load, that's good fruit. No one else may see it, but you do. And that's very good fruit. And it's the proof of your faith that bears even more good fruit. And so we might call that another form of good fruit that is exclusive to the account of a believer. In other words, the reason an unbeliever's counterfeit faith doesn't work is because it cannot bear divine good fruit. They do not have the apparatus, for example, a.k.a. the new creature, in order to have good fruit born in and through them. Nor do they have the Spirit's specific ministry as helper, as Scripture refers to him. In any case, I want to show you a perfect example of what Paul was ta- Peter was talking about in 1 Peter 1.7. And I want to use the account of Peter's fishing drought. Uh, you remember the account that we considered on Tuesday in Luke. But before we do, I want to turn your attention to the context of the scene. The context of the scene, because it's really important. And FYI, I pray that this method that I'm using right now is something that you learn to do every time you sit down and ponder a passage of Scripture. Never forget this. Context is key. Context is key. For example, in Luke 5, consider the following truths. We're going to read 5, 1 to 11. Here's some things to think about before you even read the passage. The fishermen had given up catching fish. They were like, that's just not happening. Jesus got into the boat with a crowd watching him. Jesus performed the miracle by faith. Remember, Jesus had faith as well. Peter is stricken with shame in the God-man's presence. In other words, when Peter did that thing, or excuse me, when Jesus did that thing, Peter realized even more so on the spot that this was an act of God. And because of that, he was stricken with a certain shame. Go to Luke 5.1. Luke 5.1. So keep these four points in your mind. That should set the stage for what the Spirit wants to convey this evening. And this is what you should do every time you read a passage of Scripture. What is the context? What is the context? Even if you go to one verse and it's your so-called you know, favorite go-to verse, what's the context of that verse? You might be surprised. You might be surprised. Luke 5.1 Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him, And listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, that's Peter, by the way, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. So there's a crowd. He gets in the boat, and he's continuing to teach. In other words, look at me. I'm still teaching you. i got this crowd. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled, there's the miracle. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. 
But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Hmm. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. What a scene. Again, now that what say you of the points on the board? What say you of that passage? Again, Luke 5, 1 to 11, the fishermen had given up catching fish. Jesus got into the boat with a crowd watching him. Jesus performed a miracle by faith. Peter is stricken with shame in the God-man's presence. That's the context of the scene. Truly, that is the context of the scene. So ask yourselves, what did Jesus do in context? Well, for starters, he took advantage of the situation. And that is the context that I want you to see here. He took advantage of a situation. And that's the context. There was a crowd watching all of this, beginning with the weary fishermen and ending with one in particular being so overwhelmed in the presence of the God-man, that his only response was to express a godly fear of him. It's this fear that the Bible talks about that intrinsically shines light on the fact that we are sinners. In other words, if you're going to stand to the Holy One, you're going to feel like a sinner. Amen? If you're going to stand next to perfect righteousness, God, you're going to feel quite like a sinner. And that's what went on. And that was what, let's say, invoked Peter's response. Which brings up the basic principle. What about Peter? What do we see? What was Jesus trying to show? The humble, repentant heart. If we truly fear God, we are overwhelmed by our own sinfulness. This is the precursor, of course, to repentance that leads to salvation. And nowhere in Scripture is it suggested that believers lose this sense of fear and repentance. Nowhere in Scripture does it say, I'm saved now, I don't have to uh, have this sense of a repentant heart because now I'm saved. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that. Nowhere. So that heart of repentance stays with us, doesn't it? It reminds us of how much He did for us on the cross. It reminds us of God's grace every step of every day. So we don't lose, thank God, right? We don't lose. We might try to eject it and become arrogant to some degree, but we don't necessarily lose a sense of fear, respect, or repentance. That's the humble, repentant heart. Of course, a person who doesn't fear God doesn't repent. Ever. Think about that. What's the precursor to salvation? If you don't realize that God's perfect and you're not, you're not going to think you need a Savior. If you don't realize that you're a sinner, you'll never repent towards God. So a person who doesn't fear God doesn't repent, like, ever. And if you don't Realize that, just read Romans 1 tonight after service, and you'll see what the results of a lack of godly fear look like. Up here on the board. Romans 1, 18-32 specifically, reveals what a lack of fear and respect for God looks like, and that it is the cause for a lack of repentance. Now, getting back to um, the antithesis of Romans 1, 18-32, that is the heart of Peter. Go to Luke 5.8. Luke 5.8. We just read it. We're just going to dive in here to see his response now. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Now, ask yourselves, that's Luke 5.8, that's at the beginning, the very beginning of Luke's walk as a disciple even. How does Peter's response there compare to the same man who wrote 1 Peter 1.7 much later on? Think about that. Think about the same heart. 
that was evidenced. I mean, Jesus Christ personally chose Peter. And he didn't make a mistake. Peter had a humble heart. He was, you know, had the foot in the mouth-itis. But he was a humble man, as evidenced here in his response. And you have to say, that was him then. And then as he matured, he wrote 1 Peter 1.7, which says the proof of your faith. Hmm. Additionally, do you find it interesting that Peter is the one whose soul was moved to write 1 Peter much later on in general? You see, very early on in Peter's life, Jesus was using him, molding him, because he had found him a humble man. In humility and by faith, Peter went back out with his empty fishing nets and ended up pulling in so many fish that the boats almost sank. So the principle is simple. Peter had faith, Luke 5, 1-11, and the proof of that faith, 1 Peter 1, 7, is worth much more than anything he hauled into the boat that day. It wasn't even about the fish. That was just the miracle. What happened? He ended up following Jesus. <laughs> That's what happened. That's the real miracle, folks. The miracle is that people get saved. That's the miracle. Who cares about the fish? But you see, Peter had faith in the proof of that faith, which he wrote about much later on in his ministry, in 1 Peter 1.7 is worth much more than anything he hauled into the boat that day. His faith was increased, as were others, and afterwards he left everything and followed Jesus. Look at verse 11, Luke 5.11. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. You mean he's not going to eat all the fish? <laughs> you mean he's not going to wait around for the... For the uh, the, the value of selling all those fish in the marketplace, he'd be a rich man for the day, right? Nope, that's not even what, where all the wealth was. And that's what a humble heart sees, and that's what I see in this verse. Same guy who wrote, the proof of your faith is much greater than gold. He could have gotten some amount of gold for all that fish, I'm not sure, but that's not what mattered to him. That's not really what matters to anyone with a humble, repentant heart. That's the point. So to put these two tremendous passages together up here on the board, Luke 5, 1-11 and 1 Peter 1, 7, Jesus never stopped strengthening the faith of His disciples. Likewise, He never stopped strengthening our faith in time. Faith does the job of overcoming our fears, which is fruit of the flesh, so that our inherent desire to obey, fruit of the new creature, that's all it can do, may perform unrestrictedly in and through us. Oh, and the Spirit is our helper in all of this. John 14. That's how you synthesize these things. You see, he went through it in Luke 5, and then he wrote about it in 1 Peter. So I ask you to dwell on the point on the board, and I encourage you to discuss it amongst yourselves. And as you're doing that, may I share something else that the Spirit put on my heart while I was pondering this for this evening's message, expounding upon 1 Peter 1.7. Among the greatest fruit for a true believer is their eternal security. Now, think of proof of your faith. Among the greatest fruit for a true believer is their eternal security. John 18.9 says, I lost not one. That sense of security, knowing that you've been saved, is among the most basic fruit in your soul. And it is fruit, because it is a gift given by God to you. And it has become part of who you are. Example given, the new creature is assured of its destiny, and the Spirit confirms it. 1 John 3.24, 1 John 4.13. In other words, I was thinking about the proof of your faith. Well, what did you receive at salvation if you're saved? Faith. Faith did what? 
saves. We call it saving faith. And if you're saved, the Spirit will say to you, with that new creature, you are saved. And that joins perfectly with, I came as a sinner. (laughs) I'm a sinner saved by grace. That repentant heart that we let off with this evening remains. It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't go anywhere if it was actually there, in other words. If it was never there, the faith is fake, counterfeit, and it won't last. So among the greatest fruit, think about that, among the greatest fruit for a true believer is their eternal security. That sense of security, knowing that you've been saved, is among the most basic fruit in your soul. And it is fruit because it is a gift given by God to you, and it has become part of who you are. Example given, the new creature is assured of its destiny and the Spirit confirms it. On the flip side, if you don't have that fruit and you aren't assured of your eternal security, what might you say to yourself? What might you conclude even if you don't have that sense of security? This is why whenever I hear a person intimate that they are unsure of their eternal security, it confounds me that they also say that they believe in Jesus Christ. Whenever I hear a person say, I'm, you know, I'm unsure of my eternal security, I think there might be a certain sin I could do that would I'd lose my salvation. That confounds me. Whenever I hear this, a red flag goes off in my soul. One that begs the question, does this person understand the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or do they just believe in certain truths about Jesus Christ? Do they, and have they believed the gospel? Do they understand the full gospel of Jesus Christ? Or do they just believe that Jesus Christ is the, you know, the, the head of the Christian religion and well, Grandma believed in him, so I'll just say I believed in him. And I went to all these classes along the way and I guess he's real. And if anybody asks, the right thing to say at Thanksgiving is what? Oh, I believe. So people are trained. Oh, I totally believe. But what do you believe? Because if you believe that you can lose your salvation, then God the Holy Spirit is not convicting you of that thing, is He? Something's missing. If you're insecure, you're not supposed to be insecure after you're saved. The biggest question of all is, do they understand the cross that all sins were paid for? For example, the most prominent denomination in our area, as far as I understand it, teaches that a person can lose their salvation through certain venal sins, I think is what they call them, like murder, for example. Now, I don't know what Bible they're reading, because all you have to do is think about Moses. Or David. You know what both of them were? After they were saved? Murderers. I I guess we won't be seeing Moses and David in heaven. Are you kidding me? This is what we're posturing here? That if if you murdered someone after you're saved, that you no longer are secure in your salvation? Are you kidding me? What about Moses and David? What do you say about individuals like that, or anyone for that matter? Are we to suggest that both of these men lost their salvation because they murdered someone after being saved? So it stands to reason that if a person is insecure about their salvation, it's quite possible that they have clung to a false gospel. And that's between them and the Lord. I'm not making any recommendations on how to tell that in anyone, including yourselves. That's between you and God. But if they're insecure about their salvation... It's a possibility that they have clung to a false gospel. If you believe you can lose your salvation, then it's very likely that you don't understand the efficacy of the cross. In other words, was it sufficient or was it not? Did he die for all sins or just some or most? And who decides? Hence my point on the board regarding the proof of your faith being fruit in the soul that you are eternally secure once saved. 
Among the greatest fruit for a true believer is their eternal security. I mean, what's worse than what? Am I saved today? Did I do a sin bad enough that now I'm not saved? That's not a sense of anything. That's a sense of insecurity. And that is not fruit of the Spirit. That's fruit of the flesh, you see? The sense, that sense of security, knowing that you've been saved, is among the most basic fruit in your soul. And it is fruit because it is given by God to you, and it has become part of who you are. The new creature is assured of its destiny. And after writing this point down in my notes, as I listened to the Spirit during Tuesday's lesson, I also wrote the following. Distinctions. There are those who actually walk by faith and those who have an incomplete, quote-unquote, faith that says that walking by faith is the right way to walk. It's one thing to mentally assent to something. It's another to live it. The righteous man shall live by faith. Romans 1, 17. That's another distinction that each and every one of us has to think about in our own lives. There are those who actually walk by faith and those who have, an, let's say, an incomplete faith that says walking by faith is the right way to walk, but it's one thing to mentally assent to something, it's another to live it. The righteous man shall live by faith, Romans 1.17. So this typically gets people thinking, which is always a good exercise. I would argue that most Christians don't give the Christian walk two thoughts after they bolt out of church on a Sunday or a Saturday night, whenever they choose to go. But those that are paying attention to the Spirit, it's a good exercise. It gets people thinking, like, well, does this describe me? Do I walk by faith or do I just know that it's the right thing to do to walk by faith? And if it does, what does that mean? I mean, what does that mean? And then, then along comes Jesus' words. Go to Matthew seven seventeen, just to pile things on a little bit. Matthew seven seventeen. So here comes the Spirit from behind the pulpit saying, hey, there's this distinction. There's a difference between walking by faith and just knowing that it's the right thing to do. And there's a difference. That's like James, right? Don't just be hearers who delude themselves, be doers. Matthew seven seventeen. Then along comes this, so you read this scripture. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. So then that's put on your lap. Some may ask, a, let's call it a bad question, at the realization that they don't always produce good fruit. Like, well, <laughs> am I a good tree or a bad tree? You read that verse, you might say, well, okay, well, am I a good tree or am I a bad tree? And I say that's a bad question. Or they might say, are members of my family or friends good trees or bad trees? So stop. I say stop. Therein lies the first error of interpretation. You're asking a bad question. Why? Because you haven't actually done the homework on the context. So you just take this parable of trees and fruit bearing and you apply it to everything. And you get yourself in a tangle. And you might even make yourself insecure for a time. So you've got to stop. Therein lies the first error of interpretation. Chances are, I was thinking about this, if you are a member of this congregation, the context, strictly speaking, of Matthew 7, 17 to 18, is not your life's context. It's not your life's context. Every life has a context, my friends. Yours has one. Mine has one. The Pharisees had one, Jesus' life had one, his disciples each had one. Every life has a context. 
That's why I can say something, you can take it out of context, go tell another person, they're like, what a jerk, he said that? But I was telling a joke. But you only told the punchline, which was like raw or something, God knows what, right? Now, the, the person over here thinks I'm a jackass because you took my life out of context. Context is everything. So I do believe that. It's not your life's context. Matthew 7, 17 to 18. Jesus was saying something. In other words, while Jesus' words regarding trees and fruit are never wrong, they must be applied in context. He's essentially saying that the Pharisees are bad trees. And bad trees can only produce bad fruit. And then he says, look at it. <laughs> but how about each of us? Well, consider the context of your life. I just said this. Your life has context too. And if you try to take a general statement about fruit-bearing trees and forcibly draw a conclusion about a whole person, for example, yourself, out of context, you will end up confused. I don't know, you tell me right now. Everybody come up here and say, I'm a good tree, I'm a bad tree. I'm a good tree. I'm a bad tree. What? Seriously? That's what Jesus was trying to convey in Scripture? He wanted you to impose something upon your own life out of context? So you could be what? Felt, made felt insecure by your own flesh? So if you try to take a general statement about fruit-bearing trees and forcibly draw a conclusion about a whole person, for example, yourself... Out of context, you will end up confused. This is the reason why the spirits occupied so much of this pulpit's precious time lately on teaching you how, not just to read the Bible, but specifically even parables. Because that seems to be an area where people get loose and they lose sight of what's actually trying to be said in context. And because of that, their interpretations vary wildly. It's because parables, think about this, how to read parables. Parables, in many ways, are the most contextually sensitive passages in all of Scripture. In many ways, the parables are the most contextually sensitive passages in all of Scripture. In other words, if you don't understand the context around the parable, you're definitely not going to get it right. You know why? Because life, my friends, has context. Without context, parables are especially susceptible to interpretation errors. For example, does you will know them by their fruit in Matthew 7.20 mean that we are able to discern everyone's salvation by merely looking at their outward fruit? Some might say, it says it right there, you shall know them by their fruit. Look, at they're bad trees, therefore they can't be saved. Really? Oh, really? You have the ability to discern the things that are left to God's own sovereign discernment now because you have a scripture that you've plucked completely out of context? This is what we've come to? No, you don't have that right to do it. And you wouldn't if you understood the context. In context, since, you know, life has context, Jesus was teaching his disciples about the Pharisees. Are there certain principles, statement, or principle statements in Matthew 7 that we may rightly cling to? Absolutely. But we mustn't let our speculations run wild. We mustn't let our speculations run wild. As the Spirit has been pointing out, if ever our interpretation of a parable begins to stray, then plainly stated theology and other passages of Scripture will keep things in check. It's verbal, plenary Scripture. It's the whole thing. We don't have the right to pluck something out. You shall know them by their fruit. Bad tree, bad tree, unsaved, saved, unsaved. We don't have the right to do that. By plucking something out of context. 
The issue then, again, if ever our interpretation of a parable begins to stray, then plainly stated theology and other passages of Scripture will keep things in check. The issue is that most people don't have a complete handle, handle on verbal plenary Scripture. They don't have a handle on it. That's what the pastor's for. They don't have a handle on it yet. So they like to pluck things out of context. So the other scripture I just alluded to doesn't exist in their souls to keep them on track. That's the problem. Some in this group are among those who have spent all their time in the weeds, compiling doctrines upon doctrines, seeking increasing specificity with each step that they take, and never realizing that they are losing sight of the big picture constraints in the Bible. One particular area that seems to plague people when they read parables is the following up here on the board. Imposing contemporary culture upon a parable will inevitably result in errant conclusions. Imposing contemporary culture upon a parable will inevitably result in errant conclusions. Speculation is always bad when it's taken as theology. You know, sometimes we sit around the Bible studies, right? I don't do it anymore, but um, I used to, right? And we would talk about things openly and say, you know, and I've given like uh, Michelle and uh, DJ guidance on these things as they facilitate the gender-specific Bible studies. It's okay to have a conversation, but never... Never take a speculation, something that's not warranted in Scripture as theology. Never do that thing. You cannot take an example of someone's life in Scripture and then go, bam, 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 that's the theology of David being an idiot, or Jacob being a mama's boy, or Job's wife being a wench, or whatever. Sarah being the greatest female human being that ever lived. No, these people were just human beings like you and I who were trying to apply whatever theology they had in their own lives. Sometimes they were successful, sometimes they weren't. Speculation is always bad when it's taken as theology. If you don't get it, you've missed it. In other words, like Scott said openly, Sometimes he says, and how long have you been at it, Scott? A couple of decades, right? Hardcore into the Word of God for decades. You can read something. I'm the same way. You might read something. You might read a parable and go, you know, I don't get it yet. So? Fine. Fine. Then wait till he reveals it to you. If you don't get it, then you've missed it. If it's not plainly apparent, do not take it upon yourself to construct something that isn't there. That's called speculation, and that is very dangerous. Let me give you a, it's not really a parable, but it's just to drive this simple point home. It's more of a moral of the story type example. And the facts of it just happen to be true. Okay? What color is this? Michael, you can't play. What color is that? Orange. Orange. (laughs) Blue. (laughs) What color is this? Yellow. Yellow. Right? Okay, you ready? The color wheel. Remember primary colors? Yay. We put blue and yellow together. What do we get? Green. Okay. So you have this. Let's call that our long-standing, plainly stated truth. Okay. Here are a few other facts to consider. All of them true, by the way. It's none of your business, but he tells me I have to share these things, so whatever. My life in context. Green is my favorite color. Scientifically, green has proven to be relaxing. Statistically, you know. I have painted my home office green. Okay, these are three true facts about me. Now... 
given the last two slides, what might you say about me then? You might say, my favorite color is green. Okay. Science shows green relaxing for most people. All right. And my home office is green. Okay. However, beyond the scope of my statement lies the plainly stated doctrine that blue plus yellow equals green, right? Okay. Now, here's an example of speculation. And think about how people do this with biblical things. Do you have the right to say that since I like green, that I must also like blue and yellow simply because green is their derivative? No, you don't. But a sophomore will do just that. They will speculate that they know more than they do. And so Scripture says, do not be wise in your own estimation. Romans 12, 16. Oh, yeah, I know, Pastor. He and I, we're like, we're like this, we're tight. He loves green, primary colors. Stands to reason he loves blue and yellow because they make green. So they add, oh, he also loves blue and yellow. But I used, quote, doctrines. Yeah, you did. Out of context. In my experience, sophomores are often the people with the most developed intellect even. Why? In many ways, human intellect is antagonistic to faith. The flesh uses it to rationalize error rather than submit to truth. That's the danger of actually being smart, my friends. You can come up with all kinds of crazy things. That actually sounded cool, didn't it? Oh, wait a minute. Did he say like green? Did you know? Did you know that blue and yellow make green? Therefore, he must also like blue and yellow. Because they make green. Huh? Huh? Who's the one who found that awesome doctrine? Pastor Ed Collins. I'm going to write a little booklet and sell it. (laughs) Five bucks. Sounds cool, doesn't it? Did you know? Suffice to say that intellect, as we've noted, serves the flesh very well. On the flip side, a child will say simply that I like green, so I painted my office that color, probably because it relaxes me, and that would be an accurate conclusion to make. Probably, don't know for sure, but I know that he likes green and his office is green. It's probably a good probability that he, it relaxes him based on what science says. But I can't say for sure, you see. And that's all a you know, well-intentioned faith of a child person would do. And that would be acceptable. And that's the same, that goes, same kind of approach to parables that we ought to take. It isn't until a person learns of their primary colors, for example, blue plus yellow equals green, and seeks to read more into me than what is there, that they begin making that error about my having to like blue and yellow. I've met many smart people in this world that consistently assume to understand me and others in ways that they simply do not have the ability to understand. And it's not because I'm greater, it's just they don't know me well enough. But I've met many very smart people that have made that mistake with me that they have the ability to understand me. And um, my family and I always laugh about it because it happens more than you might imagine in my life. And it's funny because if you actually do know me, like really personally, you know half the stuff that gets slung at me isn't anywhere near the truth. It's not even close. But people see what they want to see. They use bits and pieces of my life, my context, things that they might know about me or things that I've said. And they, quote, fill in the blanks on the rest because they cannot stand not understanding more about 
me or others or whatever the situation. But more often than not, and I can only speak from my own personal experience, they are wrong and sometimes gravely. And so as a result, I've been accused of so many things that simply do not exist in my soul. Why? It's not about me, so don't think about me right now. I'm just the example, you see. Concentrate. Why? Why does that happen to anyone? Well, the answer to that question is arrived at in the same way that one discerns why a person can make such a mess of parables in the Bible. The truth is this. There's way too much speculation. Way too much. Some people simply aren't satisfied with what they are given, so they speculate, sometimes egregiously. And the more they do that, the further from the truth about someone or something they get. Yeah, that's the danger of speculation. And without context, it leaves you wide open. Without context, you're unbounded. You start taking contemporary times and saying, oh yeah, that parable, you just, just cookie cutter it over here to Massachusetts, still stands the same over here. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. How could it? He was dealing with Pharisees. We don't have Pharisees. We don't have a, a theocracy. We don't have a, 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 a God state, a theocracy where the religion is actually the governing body. We don't have that. So we don't have Pharisees. We don't have scribes. We have people like them who make similar errors, and that we can conclude. That's fair. But we can't cookie cut it. And that's where speculation comes in. The simple truth is that I do like green, and it does relax me. And my office is painted green. But to take it any further could prove a huge mistake. I just so happen to like blue a lot, but not as much as green. And I like yellow much less than either blue or green. But if you don't know that, you don't know that unless I tell you. Don't use some other primary color wheel that you got in the third grade or whenever they teach that. Right? In my case, it was like 8th grade. right? And then superimpose it on my life and say, that's the truth about you because of this other thing over here. That's what people do. So you don't know these things unless I tell you these things. That would be the equivalent of plainly stated theology in the Bible. Now that I've told you I like blue, not as much as green, I like yellow less than both, now you can actually say with confidence that's plainly stated theology when it comes to the context of my life. Fair enough? But you don't get to do that prior. The context is prohibitive of that very thing. So if I give you the following facts, again, not to belabor this, I hope you're getting the point, Green is my favorite color. Scientifically, green is proven to be relaxing. I have painted my home office green. Can you say, suppose that's all I gave you, can you say in the absence of my telling you plainly that the reason I painted my office was because I wanted it to be relaxing in there? The answer is no. It's not. Maybe, maybe I painted it green because I like frogs. And I wanted to, honestly, I wanted to be reminded of frog skin. I'm serious. You don't know that, do you? You don't know that. Just saying. Can you say for sure, before I told you, that I like the two colors that comprise green, blue and yellow? No, you can't. Maybe I like blue and or yellow, and maybe I don't. You don't know. Can you say that everyone finds the color green relaxing? No. Some people who are colorblind <laughs> can't distinguish between red and green. That's the most common one. Is that the one you have? Yeah, that's the most common one. They, they, don't tell, they can't tell the difference between red and green. So maybe I'm colorblind. Maybe my walls are red. You're like, what the? Right? <laughs> like, how do you study in here? <laughs> right? You don't know these things unless I've what? Plainly stated them. 
I've learned that the more intelligent a person is, the more likely they are to make this mistake. But in keeping with my own counsel here, I cannot say that every intelligent person makes this mistake. Jesus, though, was supremely intelligent, and he never made this mistake. And when he spoke his parables, he knew exactly the point he was trying to make because his life and his disciples at that time had context. And that's what you have to discover. If you really want to understand the true beauty of something as beautiful as a parable, you have to discover the context. See, everybody spends all their time on these little nuances, and there's nothing wrong with systematic theology, but listen to what I'm saying. People spend way too much time on even the original language. Nobody in here, including myself, is a professional at the three original languages, which means we have to stand on the shoulders of other people that have been, that put together this English Bible. Some people spend way, way, way too much time going into the weeds and losing track of the context. So getting back to parables, avoiding speculation errors. The parables haven't changed. Think about this. The parables haven't changed in 2,000 years. Technically, they were on Jesus Christ's heart before man was even created. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So... In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. All these things, these parables, the, the, the concepts that are held in the parables, they've been around forever. But for the sake of our arguments, parables haven't changed in 2,000 years. However, our culture and our, quote, life contexts have changed dramatically. Therefore, in order to, quote, find the meaning of a parable... We must avoid imposing contemporary ideologies, including contemporary Christian ideologies, including those, because there's lots of those as well. In order to find the meaning of a parable, we must impose, avoid excuse me, imposing contemporary ideologies on them in favor of understanding the context in which they were written the time, the place, the person, the culture, etc. If you want to spend any real time on anything, spend some time on that. Spend your time on the context. The audience, the culture, who was talking, you know, the nature of their ministry even. Then you'll get a closer idea of what actually was trying to be conveyed. I gave you that weird, you know, men of pigs parable, and everybody laughed and had a kick over it. But I, you know, if we said that back in the day, they'd be like, what are you talking about? The only reason it makes sense is because of the context that it's given in. So we have to actually go back and find out what the context was. If you're going to spend any real time, I would encourage you to do that. Seriously. Get a good book on uh, early church history. I'm going to give you an example here coming up. One of my favorite books of all time. Just saying. The general principle the Spirit's giving us up here on the board. If a parable doesn't allow for certain specifics, then we can't impose them. Even though we desire to draw certain conclusions, parables aren't meant to be dissected ad nauseum. They are meant to be consumed whole, so a general rule or theme may be understood. However, man has a tendency to impose his own restrictions on the parables in the Bible. Parables are predominantly meant to drive a single point or two home, 
They are not meant to be plucked apart and forced to shed light on things outside of their primary scope of revelation. So before I close, I can't believe I'm out of time, but I am. One last thing to consider regarding parables, and this has everything to do with the context of Jesus' life when he spoke them. Specifically that his disciples were considered, think about this just for a moment. The context of the parables was that his disciples were considered uneducated. When the Jewish leaders were the intellectuals. So you have this, let's say, a duality, this sort of bipolar existence when it came to religious things. You've got the educated crowd, the Pharisees, the scribes, the leaders, and you have the un, so-called uneducated crowd, the disciples. You know, the ones that Jesus handpicked for humility, not for their intellect. Okay? And that was the context of the parables. Paul wasn't around yet. He was really smart, but he was a different story. And this is that book I was telling you about. But I'm just warning you, just warning you, I sent it to someone in the past, and they kind of wanted to return it to me. (laughs) They said it was way too much like a textbook. And it was because it's like this thick. But then use it as a textbook. I'm serious. The Life and Times of Jesus and Messiah by Alfred Edersheim. By the way, he's a Jewish believer. Phenomenal. Best account of, best collective account of history that we care about regarding the life of our Lord. What, what did his town look like? What did, that, what did the nation look like? What were the pressures? What were the... Phenomenal. It is a slow read. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> I'm just saying. But it is Phenomenal. I kid you not. And if you really, if you're really intent on understanding the heart of his words, why he spoke the way he spoke, all those kinds of things, who he spoke to, when he did speak to the Pharisees, well, what were they like? What was does anybody know the history of Phariseeism or scribes or any of that stuff? Most of you say they're bad people. But how did they come about? And what were the political machinations, machinations, if you would, that drove them? What was the pressure from without Jesus' ministry? What was he dealing with? What about the kingdom? Why is everybody all ramped up on the kingdom of heaven? Why didn't Paul talk like that? Because of context. Let Let me read something with you. Real quick, go to Matthew 13.10. I just want to show something with you to you really quick. I'm already kind of over time, but whatever. I'm riding my motorcycle up with DJ tomorrow, so this could be the last you ever see me. We could get run over. Just saying, DJ could cut me off because he's reckless. What about Jesus' life in context? Here's a, par- here's a uh, thing for you right here. Matthew 13, 10. And the disciples, the so-called uneducated, came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? The uneducated disciples, so-called. Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, the intellects, it has not been granted. There's the, isn't that the craziest thing? He's like, I'm going to speak in the most simple terms, but they're not going to get it. These intellectual jerks are not going to get it. So I'm going to use you, the humble, uneducated. To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people 
has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. God gives grace to the humble, remember, John or James 4, 6. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. And he goes on to speak of the parable of all parables to them. What's the context of the parable of all parables then? You tell me. You just saw it. Who's he talking to? The so-called uneducated crowd. Who doesn't get it? The intellects, the educated crowd. What's on the heart of the uneducated crowd? How do I get into the kingdom of heaven? That is the context, my friends. That is the Jewish context of the parable of parables. What you should see here is consistent with what the Spirit has been saying for some time now from this pulpit, which is that human intellect mixed with the flesh makes a total mess of the spiritual life. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.